my foot got trapped in it, and then I did like a backflip off of it and broke my foot. I think we were feeding our birds one time, and they never knew what the cave was haunted. But I found it and tried to give it to her, but she said no. It's time for The Apple Seed, a show filled with all kinds of stories for you and your family. Tall tales, personal tales, tales from great literature. We've got all of that and more on today's show. We hope that something in today's stories will spark memories for you that will open up great conversations between you and the people that you love. Great stories can do that. We believe they can change your family's world. I'm your host, Sam Payne. Today on the show, we've got a couple of stories about people making a trip to reach out to help a friend in a time of need. You know, there are a lot of stories and songs out there about people who promise to come running to be by a loved one's side. Here's an example. There's a great song called Where You Lead from the wonderful songwriter Carol King. It's from her iconic album, Tapestry. Here's just a little bit of it. And I would go Again, Where You Lead is the name of that song. Carol King, the songwriter. And in this case, it's pretty clear that she's singing about a romantic partner. And that's a nice sentiment, right? But that's not exactly the kind of thing we're thinking of in today's show. So why did we bring you that song as an example? Well, that song, Where You Lead, took on a new meaning many years after Carol King originally recorded it. She recorded it again as the theme song for the TV show Gilmore Girls. Now, you may or may not be a fan of Gilmore Girls, but our producer, Brian Tanner, is. And if you're not familiar with the show, it's about a mother and daughter with an unusually strong bond. And over the course of many seasons, they do, in fact, rush to show up for each other in times of need. And fittingly, for a show about mothers and daughters... Carol King, the songwriter, reworked some of the lyrics and turned the song into a duet with her own real-life daughter, Louise Goffin. Here's some of the new version of Where You Lead. If you're out on the road, feeling lonely and so cold, all you have to do is... The Gilmore Girls version of Where You Lead, a duet between Carol King and her real-life daughter, Louise Goffin. And with those changes, the meaning of that song shifted. It was no longer so much a song about romantic love, and now a song about the love we can feel for a family member or a dear friend. Love that motivates us to drop everything, to catch that next train whenever they call our name. And that is what we're talking about on the show today. First up, we'll hear a story from Georgia storyteller Andy Offit Irwin. Now, the story is called Book Every Saturday for a Funeral. It's one of Andy Offit Irwin's Aunt Marguerite stories. And in this story, Aunt Marguerite hears that one of her dearest friends is in hospice care. So she sets out for one last visit before it's too late. So she gets on the road and she's, you know, when, you're, when you know you're heading towards grief, you start thinking about the people you love. Just a moment from Book Every Saturday for a Funeral. The story is full of humor and tenderness and you won't want to miss it. We're going to bring it to you in just a moment here. And later in the hour, we'll hear another story on the same theme, but with kind of an animal kingdom twist. It's a dramatization of a scene from the classic children's novel, The Wind in the Willows. And we'll tag along with Rat and Mole as they head out into the night to find an otter pup that has gone missing. Rat, I simply can't go and turn in and go to sleep and do nothing. We'll get the boat out and paddle upstream. Just a moment from our adaptation of the Wind in the Willows, the classic book by Kenneth Graham. And that's coming up later this hour. But let's get things started with the Georgia storyteller Andy Offit Irwin. Now, this is one of his beloved stories, as we said, about his fictional Aunt Marguerite. And although characters in Aunt Marguerite's world may be fictional, that doesn't mean they don't ring 
true, or that they don't remind you of people that you know and love. Whether it's the indomitable Marguerite herself, or her humorless daughter Francine, or even her late husband Charles, who was forever quoting Shakespeare, I suspect that someone in the story will remind you of someone in your life. So as you listen, pay attention to the thoughts and feelings you have about your own loved ones. Save them up. Be ready to share them around the dinner table or the living room. That kind of storytelling can make for memories that last a lifetime. And at the Appleseed, we look on that family sharing of stories as sacred work. And let's hear the story, shall we? Andy is waiting in the performance studio with our terrific studio audience. And away we go. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Uh, my 85-year-old Aunt Marguerite just recently graduated from medical school. We're also very proud of her. Yes. She's a dear one. She's, a, she's one of the uh, most, most important relatives in my life. And my son said, hey, um, you know, Pop, the first weekend in June, let's go to the zoo. And he had talked to a couple of friends. They were going to go along. And I said, sure. And I had, this is in, this is in the before time. When I was on the road, <laughs> a lot, and we looked at our calendars together, and he's been keeping a calendar. You know, he was a little kid at the time, but he's keeping a calendar. And I called Marguerite, and I said, uh, hey, we're looking at going to the zoo, because he wanted Marguerite to go. He loves his great Aunt Marguerite. And she said, let me look. And I heard her turn to the pages of her desk calendar, and I called her in April. This was going to be in June. And she said, oh, that's a Saturday. I said, yes, ma'am. She said, I I'll have a funeral. I said, what? She said, Andy, when you get to be my age, you book every Saturday for a funeral. <laughs> I said, well, we, we still want you to go. She said, well, I'll pencil you in. And it came to pass that week that we were to go to the zoo, Marguerite got a call from her goddaughter, Mary, down in Cordial, Georgia, in South Middle Georgia. And Mary's mother is... Joy, and Joy is one of Marguerite's dearest, dearest friends. They don't remember not knowing each other. Joy and Mary Frances and Mar Marguerite have been friends all their lives, since they were diaper babies, as they say. They were actually in the nursery together at the First Methodist Church. And now Joy is in hospice at Mary's house. And Marguerite called me, and I said, and she said, I, I have to go down to Cordell. Joy's in hospice at Mary's house. I said, well, okay, so um, you want me to carry you down there? In the South, that means transport in a motor vehicle. <laughs> I want to be clear. It was not, she ain't heavy. She's my That's none of that. Okay. You want me to carry you down there? No, I'll, I'll drive. Now, she has a 1968 Plymouth Fury II. It's the last car my Uncle Charles gave her before he died because he hasn't given her any cars since. <laughs> And she puts, she always changed the oil. She's going to go more than 75 miles. She gets an oil change. This is the showpiece of our Chrysler place. They love this car. She loves this car. She um, got in her car and she started heading down. I told her to make sure she had her phone on, make sure she plugged it into the cigar lighter and, you know, let me know if there's a problem and check in when you get gas and stuff. I will. And she started making her way down I-75, but then she wanted to take the old road because she was feeling sentimental. So she got on Highway 41. So she gets on the road and she's, you know, when, you're, when you know you're heading towards grief, you start thinking about the people you love. And she started thinking about her daughter, her only, her only child, my cousin, Francine. Francine is a medical researcher in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Francine likes being from the South. <laughs> Francine has two PhDs. One's in chemical, um, uh, biological chemistry, bi biology. What do you call that? Chemical biology. But it's one of them things. And I don't even know that she's a medical researcher because, you know, she couldn't actually be a physician because she would have to deal with people. She, she suffers with HDD, humor deficit disorder. <laughs> when she was smaller, my Uncle Charles loved Shakespeare. He would quote Shakespeare out of context. And, and Francine was always embarrassed and never amused by Uncle Charles when he did Shakespeare. He had two dogs, one named Prince and one named Spot, right? I know. Spot was a Pooley Sheepdog Dalmatian mix. All, I know. And always, the only time it would get on his chair is when it was coming out for the rain. He'd get up on his, his chair and goes, out, out, damn Spot. 
And Marguerite said, do not cuss in front of our daughter and her friends. Honey, it's Shakespeare. It's classical. <laughs> and then old Prince was his old lab, sweetest old dog ever. And, and then his hips gave out and his, you know, control of his bladder gave out. And we called old Dr. Exley. And this is, old Dr. Exley is one of the first vets ever. He, um, he didn't know the difference between a small and a large animal vet. He worked on horses. He worked on parakeets. And, and when somebody he knew needed to put a dog down, he would come to us. And Uncle Charles and I both dug the grave. And Francine was there. We were both in high school at the time, Francine and I. And Dr. Exley came and he gave the dog a shot and there was no pain at all. And of course, Uncle Charles said, good night, sweet prince. And may a host of angels carry thee to thy rest. And even then, Francine winced at Uncle Charles doing Shakespeare. Francine had a friend named, named Dan, and Dan and Francine were both in the flute section of the band, and she went to Dan's farm. He, his, his dad was a cattle farmer, beef cattle, and she met one of the cows. They, they just walked up to the fence, and Dan pulled up some weeds, and the cow took it out of his hand, and Francine petted the cow on the nose, and the cow went like that. And From that moment, Moment on, Francine never ate meat, never used leather, stayed away from all animal products. In fact, her daughter, Drusilla, there are very few pictures of Drusilla that Francine took. The only pictures of Drusilla were taken by my Uncle Charles and Aunt, Aunt Marguerite because back in the day, young people, that would require film. Film requires gelatin. Yeah, I know. In the before time. Yeah. Film requires gelatin and gelatin is an animal byproduct. So she was thinking about Francine she has a, a, a tough relationship with her. And she drove and she drove and she finally began thinking of her husband, Charles. She's been a widow a long time. She misses Charles and she hears him from beyond sometimes. She remembers when he was in the hospital for his last days. And our town didn't have hospice back in those days. So she's hanging around the hospital. She's in the hallway. She's drinking coffee from a vending machine, which is nature's way of saying, go to bed. <laughs> and Francine came in from Boston and gave her mama a hug. Outside the room, Marguerite was outside of the room because there was a, a doctor in there, a nurse in there, and, and somebody else putting in a, changing the needle on her central port. And when that, that technician put that needle in, Uncle Charles said, if you pierce us, do we not bleed? And when the morphines went through his veins, he said, all's well that ends well. <laughs> and Francine said, why does he have to do that? Why does he have to do that now? And Marguerite said, sugar, don't you know anything about your father? Don't you know this by now? Your dad is a show off. <laughs> Uncle Charles heard that. And he said, is that Francine? Francine, get in here. Francine walked in. He had lowered the bed. He had the remote control for the bed. Patted the bed so she could sit on it. He raised it. Up and down, up and down. Francine said, Daddy, stop. He took her hand. He said, Darling, all the world's a stage. And all the men and women, merely players, they have their exits and entrances, and each one in his own time play many parts. His acts being seven ages. First the infant, mewling and puking in his nurse's arms. And then the whining schoolboy with his satchel and fresh morning face, creeping like snail unwillingly to school. And then the lover, Sighing like furnace with a woeful ballad to his mistress's eyebrow. <laughs> and then the soldier, full of strange oaths and bearded like the pard, jealous in honor, sudden and quick in quarrel, seeking the bubble reputation, even in the cannon's mouth. And then the justice with fire, fair round belly from good capon line, eyes severe, beard of formal cut, full of wise saws and modern instances. 
so he plays his part. The sixth age shifts to the lean and slippered pantaloon, spectacles on nose and pouch on side, his youthful hose, well saved. A world too wide for his shrunk shank, and his big manly boys turned to childish trebles, pipes and whistles in its sound. Last stage of all, mere oblivion, sans teeth, sans eyes, Sans taste, sans everything. Francine was weeping, and she kissed her father, and their tears mingled. Marguerite watched that. She was thinking of that as she came in to the town of Cordial, Georgia. Cordial, Georgia is the watermelon capital of the world. I have a sticker on my guitar case that says it. I believe it. That settles it. <laughs> she got behind a school bus truck. Now, a school bus truck is this. In the farms of South Georgia, especially the watermelon, cantaloupe, honeydew farms, what they do is they take a school bus, they take the seats out, they cut the top off, put up some railing, and you end up with a $1,500 truck in the tradition of my people. <laughs> and she got behind one of those, and two watermelons fell off. They fill them all the way up. They're on their way to I-75 to distribute them throughout this great land of ours. And she saw two of those watermelons fall off, off the, off the truck. And she, she was so excited, she pulled off into a parking place. There's no, I mean, this has been going on all day. There were watermelons all over this intersection. She pulled, I took out my, 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 my phone. <laughs> iPhone. <laughs> I took out my iPhone. You know, you can take a picture with, with did you know it has a camera? You didn't know that. It does, sugar. It does. And I, I was so excited, I took a picture of the watermelon in the intersection there. And you can send it on the email. You can, sugar. You can. You probably text emails for old people. I know you. And I, I sent it to, uh, the, to Francine. I said, Francine, you'll love Cordell, Georgia. All the road kills vegetarian. <laughs> She stopped by the farmer's market. She bought a couple of watermelons to bring something. And then she arrived just behind the carport of Mary's house. I worked a gig with Kuniko Yamamoto. You might guess she's Japanese. She's from Osaka. And we did a gig together in uh, Philadelphia. And she said, there's a word that Japanese people say when they enter a house, if they don't live there, but they're welcome guests and they don't have to knock. And then Kuniko said, there's no such word. That I that that's the same as English, and I said, "Oh, au contraire." Where I'm from, that word is woohoo. <laughs> and that's the sound Marguerite made as she entered Mary's house. And Mary said, "Where in the den, at Marguerite?" And Marguerite walked into the den, and there, there was the, there was the recliner that that has the remote control, that that Joy had been using for a while. But then there was a hospital bed right next to it, obviously a hospital bed set up by a southern woman because it had a dust ruffle. <laughs> and it, and uh, it had little white Christmas tree lights going up and down the ivy pole. <laughs> and they were watching the baseball game, the Braves versus the Rockies. Watching the game and Marguerite went to the bathroom, came back and sat in the recliner and reclined it, played with it a little bit, and held hands with her old, old, old dear friend, Joy. And they watch the game together. And baseball is a good game for conviviality. You can talk or you can not. You can talk about the game or not. And these two women did not need to chat. They knew each other so very well. And they watched the game. And late in the game, they were discussing how happy they were that Chipper Jones had, had retired outright and did not become a designated hitter for the American League, which is an abomination. And late in the game, Joy said, Dolly, it's the eighth inning, and we're down by seven runs. Marguerite said, I see that. And Joy said, I'm running out of outs. <laughs> Marguerite is honest with her friend. I know. I love you. I love you too. 
And when the game was over, Marguerite became aware that Mary was rubbing her shoulders. Marguerite picked up the remote control and said, Mary, catch me. Until she was standing up, but she didn't have her sea legs yet. And Mary held on to her, and Marguerite said, Mary, do me a favor. I know you have one of those cured. Would you make me some coffee while I go to the bathroom? And Mary said, what? It's bedtime. It's 1030 at night. Well, no, I'm going to go home. And would you make me some coffee, please? I have a long drive. You're not going home tonight. There's a bedroom here. You know you're welcome. I know I'm welcome. I know who my people are, but you need the room. I have been here. Please. And Mary did, and Marguerite came out of the bathroom, and there it was, and she got in her 1968 Plymouth Fury. She stayed on I-75 this time. It's easier to find a restroom. She fell into bed when she got home, and at 8.15 in the morning, her phone went off, and it was Mary, and Joy had died in the night. So she decided she needed to do something ordinary. She went to the sink and she was embarrassed to see that there were dirty dishes in the sink and she has a dishwasher but she wanted to do them by hand. Of course, there was nobody there to be embarrassed in front of but still I felt ashamed. (laughs) So it was a double sink. She filled up the sink with hot water. When the water was hot, she put on her Playtex living gloves which come to life at night. (laughs) She stopped up the sink. She pulled out the dishwashing liquid. She put a little in the dishwashing liquid and she plopped the bottle on the counter and one bubble came out of the bottle. Teeny little thing. She watched it without language. It, It rose and then it came and touched her on the ear and she could feel it. How could she feel something so small? One little bubble of joy. It caught the thermal of the hot water in the sink and it rose again and it went behind her to the schoolhouse globe that illuminated the kitchen. She lost it in the light. And she said, Bye, Joy. Because she is a scientist, she took the bottle, made the exact same motion, squirted some in, plopped it on the counter. No, just a little bit of liquid on the plunger cap there. So, She took off her gloves. She turned off the water. She went and got her phone. She called me and she said, I'm going with y'all to the zoo on Saturday. Andy Offit Irwin with the story Book Every Saturday for a Funeral, one of many, many stories about Aunt Marguerite, Andy Ovid Irwin's fictional great aunt, the octogenarian who went back to medical school and opened a hospital with some of her pals. And in just a moment, we'll bring in our producers, Brian and Heather, for a little talk back about that story, followed by a story of two animal friends setting out on a journey to rescue their friend's lost child. You won't want to miss a word. I'm Sam Payne. It was our pleasure a moment ago to hear Andy Offen Irwin uh, recorded live in the Appleseed Studio tell a story called Book Every Saturday for a Funeral, one of Andy Offen Irwin's Aunt Marguerite stories. Aunt Marguerite, of course, is Andy's fictional octogenarian great aunt who, as sometime after the death of her husband, goes back to medical school. Uh, there's an entire world of Aunt Marguerite stories, and the denizens of her world make for some great storytelling. It was a pleasure to hear Andy tell that story. And it's a pleasure now to be joined around the desk by uh, our producers, Dr. Heather Bigley, Dr. Brian Tanner. Guys, it's a pleasure to have you with me. Hello. Yeah, great to be here. And, you know, and Andy off at Irwin's story is always a, a great ride, right? I mean, yeah. <laughs> And it's filled with stuff that you're sure must be true, and then you are reminded that all these people are fictional, you know? Yeah. 
Well, they have their roots in in real people, in, yeah. in, mm-hmm. in friends and acquaintances and, and family and members of Andy's. You know. The detail and the specificity of them certainly rings true. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and hearing a story, you know, even knowing that it's fictional brings you to so many real-life places in your own heart. Yeah. You know? where, where does a story like this take you? You know, I, I loved the scene where— they were sitting there watching a baseball game, and he kind of editorializes, like, baseball's great because you can talk or not talk. You can talk about the game. You can talk about something else. And it reminded me of these precious visits that I had with my wife's grandmother, Grandma Wright. And she wasn't in my ver- my life for very long. I married into the family not too long before she died. Yeah. But, man, she was a spunky lady. You know, she was golfing every day in her late 80s. And um, when we'd go to visit, she would just—she loved the NBA. She would turn on the TV <laughs> and— um, she loved the Utah Jazz. You know, she's, yeah. she grew up in, in in southern Utah, and so she was a big jazz fan. But I just remember watching those games, and one time we were there doing the playoffs. It was LeBron James versus the Boston Celtics. I'll never forget it. One of the most dominant nights of LeBron James' career. And she was losing her mind, and she knew all the stats. You know, she knew every player on the court, and it just, it was so delightful. You know, and it was the it was the basketball game that brought out that side of her where yeah. she was just ferociously cheering and shouting out stats and it was it was so much fun and I'll treasure those memories and the, and that was brought back by hearing yeah. this. How about you Heather? I you know I was thinking about a different a bunch of different things. The title of this story made me think we were going to have a bunch of funerals. And uh <laughs> we didn't have a bunch of funerals, but we did get sort of the piling on of griefs in this story. And one of them that's really interesting, the grief that stood out to me as as sort of the most tragic was actually the humorlessness of the daughter. <laughs> and I thought as I was listening to the story about, um, I'm kind of known for my sense of humor in my family, but I've thought about the times when I've not had one. And uh, what are those situations where I am not going to be amused and mm. I'm not going to lighten the load and I'm not going to help anybody out by, you know, helping whatever situation we're in. With, sort a, of, with a joke. With, with a, a joke. With, or With trying to lighten things yeah, up. Yeah, lighten things yeah. up or just say, hey, we're all in this together and it's okay. But I just thought of those moments when I've been humorless and, I'm, and I won't let anyone else have any humor about the moment <laughs> either. And uh, this is not funny. And, you know, <laughs> um, and I, you know, I felt really bad for this character who... Mm. Um, didn't doesn't have a sense of humor and can't yeah. see what her father is trying to do with mm-hmm. all the Shakespeare quotes, right? Mm-hmm. And I felt a lot of empathy for her, actually. Mm. So. You know, the passing of somebody close to you is a big deal partly for its rarity, yeah. you know, when you're at a certain point in your life. And certainly there have not been a lot of people pass away in my own circle, right? Mm-hmm. And every time it has happened, it's been kind of an enormous event. Yeah. And there's something really kind of penetrating, I think, about even, again, even the title, Book Every Saturday for a Funeral. You're becoming acquainted in this story with somebody for whom it's not enormous and shocking for its rarity. Mm-hmm. Some, someone for whom the passing of, of, of friends and right. loved ones is a more common part of the fabric of, well, every Saturday. Yeah. I remember uh, there was a time uh, in my mid-30s when it felt like the funerals were on an uptick. Mm. Uh, I'm starting to go to a lot more funerals. And I realized that there are certain skills that you gain at certain points in your life, and no one tells you one day you'll gain the skill of ordering flowers and knowing what to say on a card and picking out the clothes yeah. to go to the funeral and then being at the funeral. And and sometimes those funerals are absolutely joyous. Yeah. Let's be honest. Yeah. Someone lived a good life and you love them and you share these fantastic stories with each other that are hilarious yeah. and heartwarming. But it's the same time I never knew I'd have to have that skill. One part of every life is the leaving of it, right? Yeah. Of, of, of every life. Yeah. Well— Life moves through different phases. Yeah. You know, Sam, you were saying you haven't 
throughout your life been through a period where you're having many funerals. Yeah. Uh, I'm sure I've experienced this. I wonder if you have too, where it seems like there's a time in your life where everyone's getting married. It's just right. like right. the the calendar is just filled with wedding after wedding, yeah. you know? And then there's a time when everyone's having babies, yeah. you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And you just keep getting those invites and those pictures and you put them on there. And I guess if you hang around long enough like Aunt Marguerite, then you, you will get to the point where the thing that's filling up your calendars is funerals because that's, right. that's the stage of life that all the people you've traveled through life with are at. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's a that's that's exactly it. I mean, I can remember when the thing dominating my calendar were the high school graduations of my pals. Yeah. You know? uh, I I can remember a, a, I mean, the, where I am now is the thing that's dominating my calendar is the weddings of the children mm. of people with whom I have had long acquaintances <laughs> yeah. or the weddings of my own children. Right. <laughs> yeah, you find yourself in in different phases of your life yeah. in which your calendar gets occupied by a lot of the same thing. And at some point, those things are going to be funerals. Yeah. And there's a certain kind of quietness and even sweetness in in Aunt Marguerite's experience, you know, I mean, there, there's a there's a kind of grace in having those experiences often. Yeah, you know? uh, yeah, yeah. Well, of course, the story brought back a memory that I'd like to share as today's entry in the Radio Family Journal. The Radio Family Journal with Sam Payne, a tiny little story for you and your family, right when you need it, on the Appleseed. The Christmas I was in fourth grade, there were roller skates under the tree, blue with red and white stripes, red polyurethane wheels, fireball official roller derby skates, a gift from my grandparents. Maybe you had some too, for sure every kid in my fourth grade class did. I lived my life in those skates. At recess, a bunch of us would put on our fireball officials and race around the elementary school patio outside the cafeteria. It was our bid to impress our various crushes. I don't know if it ever worked, but I I wore those skates at home, too. I'd skate up and down the street at the edge of our yard. I'd try tricks. I was pretty experimental, pretty brave, I thought. And one day, a friend of my dad's came to the house for a meeting or something. He drove a big green Ford Econoline van. And during the meeting, I was outside skating, trying new tricks, being awesome. Anyway, when the meeting was over, my dad's friend came outside, got in the van, and before he pulled away... He asked if I wanted to hang on to the back of the van for a tow down the street. There were certainly a thousand reasons not to do it. If I'd been a responsible kid, I'd have said no right away. But instead, I said yes right away. I mean, it sounded awesome. I had a plan, of course. I was going to hang on for 100 feet or so, get up a good head of steam, and then let go of the van and coast onto the grass at the edge of Grandma Smith's yard, not too far away. I'd probably crash, but I'd crash onto the soft grass. What could go wrong? And so it was that my dad, in the middle of a phone call, looked out the window and saw me speeding by on my roller skates, towed at 20 or 30 miles an hour by his friend's green Econoline van. Well, my dad dropped the phone, pelted out the door, ran like a rocket to the edge of the yard and down the street after me. He was on me, even as I tumbled onto the grass at the edge of Grandma Smith's yard. He was out of breath, and as he took me in his arms, he was kind of a panicked bundle of anger and fear and love. I mean, he thought my life was in danger. And I guess it was. It was a boneheaded thing to do, grabbing onto that van. That image comes back to me from time to time. My dad running as fast as I've ever seen anyone run, like he was flying almost, desperate to get to his child in time to save me from sure disaster. And I think I understand it better now than I did then. When someone you love is in danger, even if it's due to their own boneheaded behavior, sometimes nothing matters but to go to them and help. And you don't walk, you run. If you could, you'd fly. And it's partly frustration and partly anger and partly panic in that kind of rescue. But mostly, it's something else. I learned that when I was in fourth grade, crashed on Grandma Smith's lawn looking at my dad's face as he caught his breath. Mostly, I'd say, it's love. Radio Family Journal of Sam Payne, 
a tiny little story for you and your family, right when you need it, on the Appleseed. Thanks for joining me for that entry in the Radio Family Journal. A pleasure to talk about Andy Offutt Irwin's story, Book Every Saturday for a Funeral. And I'm grateful to be joined around the desk by Brian and Heather. Guys, thanks for uh, thanks for joining me. No Thank problem. you. Lots more coming up on The Appleseed. such a pleasure to be with you on today's episode of The Appleseed. This hour has been filled with stories about people dropping everything to help a loved one in need. And while the stories have indeed been about people dropping everything to help a loved one in need, this next story features a pair of animal friends, not people at all. But they drop everything to help a loved one in need The story comes from a classic work of children's literature called The Wind in the Willows, written by Kenneth Graham. And we're going to bring this story to you in a way that we think is pretty fun. From time to time on The Appleseed, we like to gather an audience in The Appleseed studio and perform an adaptation of a great story from a beloved book. And maybe you can picture in your mind how they used to do radio plays back in the golden age of radio, the actors reading their parts live on stage while a couple sound effects people mill around making the sounds of creaking doors or footsteps or thunder to help bring the story to life. That's kind of what you'll hear in this story. We had a team playing flutes and chimes and even making the sound of rowing oars in a tank of water. In any case, here's a moment from The Wind in the Willows. Let's get started, shall we? (laughs) The Wind in the Willows was published in 1908 right in the middle of the Edwardian era in Great Britain. It was a time of great opulence, but also of great division. The wealthy displayed their plentiful riches while the working class supported them. It was also a time of technological advancement and change, and many of the stories in The Wind and the Willows started as bedtime tales for Kenneth Graham's son, Alistair, who went by the nickname Mouse. There's a lot of joy, a lot of entertainment in the tales, but there's a lot to be learned as well. Graham's tales of rat, toad, mole, and badger hearken to a place and time when the things that matter aren't money so much, but friendship and life's simple joys. Friends live along a beautiful river, and they help one another. They have adventures, and they rest well at the end of the day. There are many short stories among these Wind in the Willows stories take place among these friends, and a lot of people have met these friends in a lot of different ways. You may have ridden Mr. Toad's Wild Ride at Disneyland. We all have to say that that's our favorite because it was my dad's favorite. And so no matter what our favorite is, we have to say that one was our favorite. And a lot of people know the story about Mole who finds himself lost in a wintry forest looking to acquaint himself with Badger. Well, the story we'll hear today is unique in The Wind in the Willows because of its spiritual nature. In this story, Otter's child has gone missing and no one has any idea where he might be. And to find him, they need a little extra help. Now, you might have experienced times when you need some extra help in your own life. And maybe that help has come in the form of friends or family or in the form of inspiration or insight. In this piece, the help comes from Pan, who in mythology was the god of the wild places of shepherds, flocks, and rustic music. And the animals in the wind and the willows feel about Pan in the same way you may feel about some of the help you've received in your own life. So as you hear them describe their feelings, you can think about the things in your life that you might describe in a similar way. Along the riverbank lived a water rat whose primary joy was the river itself. That and his friend, Mole. Ah, 
the blessed coolness. It had been a sullen and hot afternoon, but its heat was broken by the cool fingers of night. You stayed to supper, of course. Simply had to, Mole. They wouldn't hear of me going before. Rat had kept an engagement with his good friend Otter, leaving Mole to explore the river. I felt a brute the whole time, as it was clear they're in terrible trouble, though they tried to hide it. Oh dear, what is the trouble? Their son, Little Portly, is missing again. <laughs> what, that child? Well, suppose he is, why worry about it? He's always straying off and getting lost and turning up again. Yes, but this time it's more serious. He's been missing for some days now, and the otters have hunted everywhere, high and low, without finding the slightest trace. Oh dear. Otter's nervous. He was going to spend the night watching by the ford. Why should he choose to watch there? It seems that it was there he gave Portly his first swimming lesson. And it was there he used to teach him fishing. The child loved the spot, and Otter thinks that if he came wandering back from wherever he is, he might make for the ford. Oh, that Pan might help the poor creature. Just what I was thinking. They were quiet for a time, both thinking of the same thing. The lonely, heart-sore otter crouched by the ford, watching and waiting the long night through. <sighs> well, well. I suppose we ought to be thinking about turning in. Rat, I simply can't go and turn in and go to sleep and do nothing. We'll get the boat out and paddle upstream. Just what I was thinking myself. It's not the sort of night for bed, anyhow. The moon will be up in an hour or so. We'll be able to search by that as well as we can. The pair paddled up the river, taking turns at the oars, calling the young otter's name. Portly! Portly! Dark as the night was, it was full of small noises, telling of the busy little population who were up and about. They spoke little as they glided up the river, watching the moon climb the horizon with slow majesty. Patiently, they explored hedges, hollow trees, culverts, and streams. The moon did what she could, though so far off, to help them in their quest, till she sank earthwards and left them. <sighs> no luck tonight. Oh, my heart sinks to think of the poor child. You don't think? No, of course not. It simply can't be. Little Portly must be alive and well. Surely Pan would care for such a helpless creature. I would pray so. And the poor otters. Having experienced this for days now, why haven't they asked for help? You know Otter's not the sort of fellow to be nervous before it's time, and he never wants to bother anyone. But now he is worried. Oh, bother. He should know his friends would jump to help should such need arise, and Mrs. Otter, too. I agree wholeheartedly. The morning is not so far off. Perhaps we can pick up some news of the little otter from the early risers. Oh, excellent idea. Do you hear it, Mole? Something's changed. Rat leaned over the stern of the boat, listening earnestly. What do you mean? Never mind, it's, it's gone. So beautiful and strange and new. It ended so soon, I, I almost wish I'd, I'd never heard it. <gasps> Wait! There it is again! I hear nothing myself but the wind in the reeds and rushes. Oh, Mole, the beauty of it, the merry bubble and joy, its distant piping. I've never dreamed of such music, and the call in it is stronger than even the music is sweet. Row on, Mole. Row on, he did. The water splashed and the currents fought, but Mole still rowed and Rat still sat, wrapped at the bow. They approached a long backwater branching to one side. With a slight movement of his head, Rat directed the rower to take the backwater. Oh, clearer and nearer still. Now you must surely hear it. Ah, uh, uh, at last I see you do. Breathless and transfixed, the mole stopped rowing as the liquid run of that glad piping broke on him like a wave. I hear it. For a space, they hung there brushed by the reeds and grass that fringed the bank. Then the clear summons that marched with the intoxicating melody imposed its will on Mole, and he bent to his oars again and followed the sound. It's getting closer. Set for that bank. 
They landed on a shore thick with meadow grass. They pushed through the blossom and undergrowth that led to level ground. There they found themselves on a little lawn of a marvelous green, set round with nature's own orchard trees. This is the place I heard in the music, the place of my song dream. <gasps> I feel good in this place, almost as if I can't move. Yes, but not in a way that's wrong. An absolute peace abounds here. Here, in this holy place, if anywhere, we may find him. The two animals raised their eyes, called as if by that same music, even though it had faded. Trembling, the two obeyed the summons and met the eyes of a great spirit. It had curved horns sweeping backwards, gleaming in the growing daylight, and a hooked nose between two kindly eyes that looked down on them with humor. Great Pan, it's him. Rat, are you afraid? Afraid? Of him? Oh, never, never. And yet, Mole, yet I am afraid. Sudden and magnificent, the sun's broad golden disk broke over the horizon, and its first rays took the animals full in the eyes and dazzled them. When they were able to look once more, the vision had vanished. He's gone. He was here and just like that. Gone. I almost wish we had never... Never what? Mole, I... Beg your pardon? What did you say, Rat? And just like that, with a capricious little breeze, came instant oblivion. This is the last gift that the kindly demigod is careful to give those to whom he has revealed himself. The gift of forgetfulness. Lest the awful remembrance should remain and grow, and overshadow future mirth and pleasures haunting their lives. I think... I was only remarking that this was the right sort of place that here, if anywhere, we should find him. And look, there he is, the little fellow. Oh, little Portly. And there, just behind the place where the vision of the great helper Pan had occurred, was the little otter curled up and slumbering. He woke at Mole's touch and wriggled with pleasure at the sight of his father's friends. There you are, little fellow. You had us worried sick, not to mention your own family. Look here, Mole. Hoofprints? Some great animal has been here. Yes. But come along, Ratty. Oh, think of poor Otter waiting up there by the ford. Of course, of course. I'm coming. The two conducted the little otter to the water's side and placed him securely between them in the bottom of the boat and paddled off down the backwater. They reached the main river again and turned upstream towards the point where they knew Otter was keeping his lonely vigil. There he is, up ahead! I see him. Portly, look! Hop out of the boat, little fellow. Go to your father. Looking up the river, they could see Otter start up. They waved their grateful goodbyes, and Mole swung the boat around and let the current bear them downstream. I feel strangely tired, Rat. It's being up all night, you'll say, perhaps, but that's nothing. We, we do as much half the nights of the week at this time of year. Noah, I feel as if I had been through something very exciting and rather terrible, and yet nothing particular has happened. Or something very surprising and splendid and beautiful. I feel just as you do, Mole, simply dead tired, though not body tired. It's lucky we've got the stream with us to take us home. Isn't it jolly to feel the sun again and hark to the wind playing in the reeds? It's like music. Far away music. So I was thinking. Dance music, but with words in it, too. I catch them at intervals, then it's dance music once more, and then nothing but reeds soft whispering. Oh, you can hear better than I. I cannot catch the words. Let me try and give them to you. Here it is, turning into words again, faint but clear. Lest the awe should dwell and turn your frolic to fret, you shall look on my power, and then you shall forget. Now the reeds take it up. Row nearer, Mole. 
nearer to the reeds. It's hard to catch and grows fainter each minute. What do the words mean? That I do not know. I passed them on to you as they reached me. Ah, oh, now they return again. Lest limbs be reddened and rent, I spring the trap that is set. But then you shall forget. And they're gone again. Wait. Oh, now they return. This time, at last, is the real thing. Simple. Perfect. Well, let's have it then. What are the words? Rat didn't answer, for as Mole looked, he understood the silence. There slumped weary Rat with a smile of much happiness on his face, fast asleep. Just a part of the wonderful book, The Wind in the Willows, written by Kenneth Graham. Rat was played by Ben Butters. Mole was played by Anthony T. Buck. The narrator was Justine Kitteringham. It's been a pleasure to be part of this hour with you on The Appleseed, where great stories can change your world. Before we go, we want to say thanks to those who have taken the time to send an email to the show or leave us a thoughtful review on a favorite podcast platform. We got a review of uh, the show on Apple Podcasts from a user called Broken Boxer who says, I absolutely love this podcast. Thank you for all your great efforts to entertain and enlighten. Thanks for that kind review, Broken Boxer. It made our day. And thanks for the five-star rating, too. We appreciate all the feedback our listeners give us. And if you have a moment and are so inclined, we'd appreciate if you could leave us a rating or review on the podcast platform of your choice. It helps new listeners find the show. And you can also send us a note by email at theappleseed at BYU. Again, that's theappleseed at byu.edu. We love to share the notes that people share with us. And who knows, we might just read yours on the show. We are pleased and proud to be part of the family of shows in the BYU Radio Network programs. And you can find this episode or any episode from our archive on the BYU Radio app at byuradio.org slash appleseed or by Googling the Appleseed Podcast. I'm Sam Payne. And I can't wait to be with you again on The Appleseed. Seed.